Welcome back to the Human Instrumentality Podcast. Although it will probably not have been a while for you hearing this from the last episode, it has been a long time since we last recorded one. Um, for context, we recorded the first batch of episodes over the end of summer and the beginning of fall 2019. And Joseph and I are currently recording this podcast about uh, in the middle of March 2020. So depending on when you're hearing these episodes, you may remember or you may know very vividly that circumstances in America have changed drastically in the intervening time. And in fact, in the last few days for, for us at, at this moment. First of all, I, I, I want to take some responsibility like that. The pause is entirely my fault. I started a new job and wanted to give myself some time to focus on keeping it which is not always the easiest thing for me. But that doesn't seem to be a problem anymore because right now there's a literal plague and we're all stuck inside our houses for God only knows how long. And uh, the Dow just dropped 3,000 points in one day. So who the fuck cares? It's the second impact. How are you? I am not a, a in an optimistic state of mind necessarily, but I, I, I would like to think that I'm taking this not in stride, but in taking this you know I'm, I'm dealing with it the best way that i can which is in part just you know self-quarantining holding up not freaking out and trying to stay busy so this podcast is a good way for me to have my mind on other things not necessarily happy things as you'll quickly find out in the bulk of this episode we are still talking about neon genesis evangelion and the show <laughs> is still incredibly fucked up so you know like you may have depending on what makes it into the edits of the previous episodes, you may remember us talking about how much our mood is probably going to be affected by the darker content in the second half of the show. Well, guess what? We didn't need the second half of the show to have our mood darkened. Now I think we're probably just going to, you know, we, we like to reference other movies and stuff while doing this podcast. I think we're very much in melancholia mode right now, or at least that's how I feel about it. I, I feel very Kirsten Dunst about the whole thing. You're Kirsten Dunst with like in the slow motion sequences with the moss clinging to your foot. Uh, right. Meanwhile, I just got my sides shaved and I feel like the bad guy in Mad Max too. Uh, <laughs> and I'm about ready to just take a lead pipe to all the walls in my apartment. So instead, let's talk about really sad cartoons. And, uh, you know, depending on when this comes out, maybe you're still stuck inside. Maybe you need something to take your mind off of it. And you, you also need a distraction of some kind. And I hope that this podcast can serve that purpose for you. In this episode, we discuss episodes 17 and 18 of Neon Genesis Evangelion and the way they address the limits of masculinity our ability to relate to others, and the ethics of war. We won't spoil anything from future episodes of the show, but we will point out foreshadowing where it's relevant. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Unit 9, launch. Episode 17, the fourth to be qualified. We open with Misato being interrogated by Zele for refusing to allow Shinji to be questioned regarding his being absorbed by Liliel in the previous episodes. Zele asks if the angels were attempting to communicate with mankind through Shinji, but Misato says it was a freak instant and they can't discern if angels have consciousness or not. Zele wonders if the angels will use more attacks like this, psychological probes and such, to eliminate the Evangelians. But Misato says the angels do not coordinate their attacks. Once she's gone, they question Gendo Ikari who says that the angels are becoming more clever, so his and Zele's time is running short. Cut to Toji, walking through a hospital, while the nurses discuss the lamentable state his still-injured sister is in. Apparently, Toji visits her quite often. Then, from an angle in space, we see a strange red light over North America. It's Nerve's second branch in Nevada, which has been wiped out by an unseen force. The base was destroyed during a test of the S2 drive recovered in Germany, incorporated into an unseen Ava Unit 4. One of the base's uh, Evangelions, Unit 3, is unharmed and will be transported to Tokyo 3. 
Ritzko hypothesizes that the S2 drive test swallowed the base in a direct C, just as Shinji was swallowed. Ritsko and Misato argue about nerves sending Unit 3, which isn't their problem, to Tokyo 3, but there's nothing they can do. Ritsko shows Gendo a completed prototype of the dummy plug, the Evangelion autopilot. It contains a copy of Ray's personality, but Ritsko warns him that the human soul cannot be digitized. Gendo says that doesn't matter so long as the Avas will respond to the dummy plug. Later, while observing Ray in her LCL tube, Ritsko and Gendo discuss the activation test of Unit 3, which will happen that weekend. Ritsko doesn't want to use the dummy plug, it's still dangerous, and says they should use a new test pilot, the fourth children. One candidate is nearby. Gendo then asks Ray to eat dinner with him, which makes Ritsko look somewhat upset. Later at school, Toji slobbers over a desk covered in junk food, while Asuka yells at Shinji for not bringing her lunch. Ritsko informs Misato that the fourth children will pilot Unit 4. He was discovered yesterday, she says, that yesterday being the yesterday where she was talking with Gendo in the previous scene. Misato asks what she's hiding, but Ritsko says that she isn't hiding anything, and then shows her the fourth children. We don't see the fourth children as the audience, but Misato says that the candidate's identity will be a tremendous blow for Shinji. Misato then muses that, while Rei and Asuka are exceptions to the rule, most pilots, like Shinji, will only have their lives made worse by piloting the Evangelions. At school, the class rep speaks with Toji in a somewhat flirtatious way while giving him papers to hand to Rei. She wants to visit her with him after school, but he brusquely ignores her and goes to visit Rei with Shinji instead. Back at Rei's horrible trap house apartment, Shinji sees his father's glasses are still there and then decides to pick up some of Rei's trash. While watching Shinji clean up, Toji says that Shinji's changed a great deal. He hated Shinji when he met him, but now he's grown to be a much nicer person. Ray enters, clothed this time. Ray's embarrassed that Shinji's cleaned up her trash and thanks them. On the way home, Toji says that all the Ava pilots are eccentric, probably commenting on how incredibly awkward every interaction between Shinji and Ray is. Bumper, fourth children. Futsuki and Gendo are on a train and marvel at Tokyo 3 a new Garden of Eden, as they refer to it, and then discuss how man was driven out of the original Garden of Eden into a world where death comes at random. Gendo insists this weakness in man is the source of their intellect, which gives them the ability to create their own Eden. Futsuki says this intellect is really a form of defense, an excuse to indulge in carnal desires in private by building walls around the danger in our world. Futsuki asks what he will report about Unit 4's loss to Zele. Gendo says that he will report the truth. It was an unseen accident, but so long as Unit 1 exists, his plan is fine. And after all, events not predicted by the Dead Sea Scrolls are inevitable. In the nerve break room, Kaji hits on Maya right before Masato walks in on him. Masato then asks him to help her uncover the secrets of the Marduk Institute. The fourth child was discovered with a suspicious quickness considering the sudden need for a pilot. Kaji tells her the Marduk Institute doesn't exist. Nerve selects their own pilots. Shinji then interrupts them, ending the interrogation. Kaji invites Shinji to have some tea with him. They sit in the geofront and get to know one another better. Kaji then shows Shinji his watermelon garden. Gardening is his hobby, and he says growing things makes you notice the little things in life that makes you happy. Shinji, on the other hand, says he doesn't like being hurt, and that pretty much nothing makes him happy. Kaji responds that knowing hurtful things makes a person more caring, and caring isn't weakness. Before they can continue, Misato calls Shinji back for a sync test. His rates are lower. Something about his interaction with Lilial in the previous episodes has made him upset. Ritsuko remarks that the next day, the fourth children will be informed of his identity. That same next day, Toji is called into the principal's office, where Ritsuko is waiting for him. On the roof, 
at the same time, Shinji's talking with Kensuke, who says he's heard rumors that there will be an activation test of Unit 3. Kensuke wishes he was its pilot, but Shinji can't help him with that. Kensuke asks Shinji if he knew that Unit 4 exploded and took out the second branch of Nerve. Shinji says Misato told him nothing, which clearly disturbs him. When Shinji returns to class, Toji is late. He takes his seat while the class rep watches, but looks distant. He then burns the trash from his school lunch packaging and gazes into the incinerator with distant intensity. The class rep approaches him again after class, noting that he always buys his food at the cafeteria. Nobody at home will prepare his meals for him. The class rep talks about how she prepares food for her sisters and offers to prepare his food for him as well. He accepts. At Nerve, Asuka bugs Kaji in his office. Kaji tells her to leave, and Asuka remarks that Kaji has plenty of time for Masato. While looking over his shoulder, she sees the identity of the fourth children, and does not like what she sees. In America, a stealth bomber takes off carrying Unit 3 on a huge red cross hanging beneath its fuselage. At her home, class rep cooks, while at school, Toji shoots free throws by himself, distracted. Episode 18, Life and Death Decisions. Unit 3, still hanging from the stealth bomber, is flying toward Japan and passes through an unusual cloud, which crackles with lightning once the Ava is inside of it. At Camp Misato, Shinji and Misato are about to leave. Misato is preparing for the Unit 3 activation test. Shinji asked Misato about Unit 4 disappearing, which he just found out from Kensuke in the previous episode, and Misato reassures him that everything is going to be just fine. Even so, Shinji's worried about her safety, but she assures him she will be fine and Kaji will take care of him while she's gone. But what about the pilot, he asks. Misato won't tell him. Kensuke shows up and begs Misato to become Unit 3's pilot, very awkwardly, ending their conversation. Later, on the bus, Misato admits to Ritsuko that she couldn't bring herself to tell Shinji who the new pilot is. She says that the new pilot might out himself, but Ritsuko doesn't think so. She also says the only reason the new pilot even agreed to the job was in order for his sister to be transferred to Nerve's medical unit. Thus, the fourth children's identity is all but totally revealed. Later with the boys, Kensuke whines that he can't be a pilot, but uh, Toji barely seems to be able to respond with interest. Asuka, who shows up late, is similarly upset for other reasons. Toji, by the way, does not stay for lunch. Rather, he goes up to the roof, where Rei confronts him. She also knows that he is the fourth children. Toji comments that Rei is acting odd, caring about others. Rei doesn't understand, until Toji observes that the only reason she's confronting him is out of concern for Shinji's feelings. Unit 3, meanwhile, lands two hours late to Misato's consternation. Outside, Toji remembers punching Shinji in episode 3 and looks at his hand in the same way that Shinji looked at his hand before fighting Liliel. The class rep talks with Asuka. She intuits that class rep has a crush on Toji, but also says that it's obvious to everyone except the ever-oblivious boys. Class rep tells her that Shinji seems sensitive, but Asuka remarks that he's the worst of all, incapable of talking to other people. Class rep says she thinks Toji has a crush on Rei. After all, they were talking at lunch. Oscar reassures her Rei is even denser than Shinji is. Then she asks the class rep what she sees in Toji. And what she sees is his kindness. That night at Misato's, Shinji asks Asuka who the Unit 3 pilot is. And she feigns ignorance. Kaji who's watching them, notices that both pilots seem disheartened. Unable to sleep, Shinji asks Kaji what Gendo's like, but Kaji tells him that he doesn't really know about his father. Other people are impossible to comprehend, he says. Even self-knowledge is difficult, but that's what drives human curiosity. When Shinji asks about Kaji's relationship with Misato, Kaji remarks that the gulf of understanding between the two sexes is wide and mysterious. 
The next day, the Unit 3 activation test begins. Ritsuko's excited, but Misato doesn't really feel excited in the same way. She still hasn't told Shinji that Toji's the pilot. At school, class rep hopes that Toji will arrive and eat her cooking. But of course, he doesn't. At the same time, Kensuke and Shinji are on the roof, lamenting Toji's absence as well. Unit 3, with Toji unseen inside, launches and immediately enters its own berserker mode. A panel on Unit 3 flips open, revealing oddly fleshy growths. The 13th Angel, Bardriel, which has infected it, and which also instantly destroys the test site, restraining it with an energy blast. Bumper. Ambivalence. At Nerve Central, they identify the incoming enemy as Pattern Orange. They can't tell if it's an angel, but they launch every Ava anyway. In Unit 1, Shinji is upset that they don't know if Misato is okay, but Asuka and Rei say he should have faith. His father is acting commander. In the center, Gendo attempts to eject the entry plug on Unit 3 by remote, but Bardiel's webbing has cocooned it within Unit 3's body. They can confirm, however, that Toji is breathing and his heart is beating. Regardless, Gendo reclassifies Unit 3 as an angel and orders the Avas to attack. In maybe the most mimetic shot in the show, Shinji sees Bardriel approaching, silhouetted like the Red Baron out of the setting sun, and is flabbergasted that he is being ordered to destroy another Evangelion. He immediately understands that another kid his age is trapped inside of it. Asuka attempts to tell him that the pilot is Toji, but before she can, her signal cuts out, and we hear her scream. Bardiel has easily defeated her uh, during this moment of distraction. In a tense sequence, Ray waits to trap Unit 3 and shoot it from behind, but hesitates, not wanting to hurt Toji. Bardiel surprises her instead, floating the same way Sakiel did in the first episode, and wrestles Unit 0 to the ground. While Ray is pinned, it oozes slime onto Unit Zero's arm, which begins to infect it as well. Gendo orders the left arm severed. Maya objects, saying that they should sever the neural connection first to spare Ray the pain, but Gendo doesn't give a shit. Unit Zero's left arm is blown off by internal explosives, leaving Ray writhing in agony and Unit Zero useless. Bardiel then closes in on Unit 1 as Gendo orders Shinji to kill it. Paralyzed at the thought of taking a human life, Shinji hesitates, and Bardiel attacks using the same pattern of strikes that Shinji himself used to defeat the third angel in episode two. Then Bardiel tries a new strategy, elongating its arms until they're twice their original length or more, and strangles Unit 1 from afar. Fiyutsuke asks that they lower the nerve connection to save Shinji's life. Gendo refuses. Instead, he asks Shinji, who is, we must remind you, being strangled to death during the conversation, why he won't fight, even if it means he might lose his life in the process. Shinji says dying is better than becoming a murderer. Gendo, at last, activates the ominous dummy plug, which has been installed in Unit 1 without Shinji's knowledge. On autopilot, Unit 1 counterattacks Bardiel, overpowering it and snapping its neck in seconds. But it doesn't stop there. The dummy plug crushes Unit 3's skull without hesitation and dismembers Unit 3's corpse until the river flowing into Tokyo 3 runs red with blood, while Shinji, powerless to stop it, is forced to watch. Shinji begs his father to stop the violence while the autopiloted Unit 1 rips the entry plug from the angel's dead body and crushes it like a soda can, with Toji still inside. The class rep, meanwhile, is looking up recipes to feed for her, her siblings, and Toji. That night, paramedics rescue Misato while Kaji looks over her. Ritsuko escaped unharmed, it seems. Kaji tells Misato that Unit 3 is dead, and Misato laments that she never told Shinji who its pilot was. Shinji's still in the entry plug, and Misato tells him, sobbing, remorseful, that the fourth children, who did survive the attack is Toji. As the episode ends, 
Shinji screams. We have been referring to class rep just as class rep, but briefly, I would just like to say that since these episodes have pretty much the most of her that we're going to see of her, that her name is Hikari. It doesn't come up often in the show. And so for the sake of convenience, we'll probably keep calling her class rep, but I just wanted to make a note of that. Yeah, I'm not, uh, for what it's worth, just so the audience knows, I'm the one who writes the blow by blows at the start of the episode for the most part. And so maybe that's erasure on my part. It's not intentional. I'm not certain that you ever even hear someone else call her Hikari. Like, I think her name shows up on like papers and in subtitles and stuff. Uh, From what I understand, her name comes up more often in the manga version of Evangelion versus the show version. But again, that that might be wrong. That's just kind of my understanding. For all intents and purposes, we're just going to keep calling her class rep because everyone forgets what her actual name is in uh, in casual conversation. So uh, we've been talking about how Evangelion is getting darker and darker, and mostly that's been a tonal thing, I think. You know, it's it's been characters facing their inner demons and sort of confronting their own insecurities, but the plot itself hasn't taken any turns that you couldn't, that didn't feel in line with the rest of the show. These episodes, I feel like, are a very stark break towards truly doing things almost deliberately to fuck up the viewer and cause the audience pain. (laughs) Uh, The way that these two episodes are set up is all leading to the absolute horror of watching Shinji tear Unit 3 limb from limb uh, it's it's built on the classic idea of dramatic irony. Like when people talk about irony in in art, usually they're referring to a sort of flippancy or like sarcasm. But this is actual dramatic irony of the audience knowing things that the main character does not and that informing how we interpret the story. The way that this information is held from Shinji is even more frustrating because it is entirely because of the cowardice and negligence of other characters that this incredible trauma is inflicted on the main character. And these episodes fuck me up like really, really bad. <laughs> um, let me, let me, let me, let me kind of box with you on that. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm boxing with you on that only out of an, a weird attempt of self kindness, because I, like, probably like you and probably like a lot of our viewers i struggle with social niceties especially when like i'm aware of something someone else doesn't i like i've been in a management position before i've had to like let someone go Mm -hmm. i've had to give someone a bad review and and people have had to do that to me you know and like there's those there's always that moment in between like you know the hammer's gonna drop in between the hammer dropping and or even like with with family members when like you know something they're not going to like is going to happen and you don't want to be the one to deliver the bad news and they're going to get the bad news eventually anyway so why should you be the one to witness it and like on like a surface level I'm actually like it's I'm I have a lot of sympathy for like Oscar being like I'm not going to fucking tell him Toji's the new pilot Fuck yeah. that. I, I, Misato fucks up here really bad, but I like, at least she like acknowledges she's like, I, she's like, I should have told him and I didn't. And that was a mistake because none of them know, like, no one expects, you know, the activation test is going to become like the most brutal battle in the series so far. Everyone except the audience, because the these two episodes do absolutely everything they can to foreshadow everything. Like, if I have one frustration with that first episode, it's like the like it almost like is ostentatious in the way that it's like we're not telling you it's Toji, but yeah, I mean it's the kind of thing where if you're like not really paying attention, but it's it's immediate the editing tells you it's toji in every single cut like every time it's like huh wonder who the fourth child is it immediately cuts to toji doing something right you know like it's not subtle and i think that that's to the episode's credit in 
the long run. Like I would prefer that they didn't like dick you around by like pretending that it's Kensuke or something, you know, they're just like, they slow roll the reveal of the information, but they don't try and like gotcha with it, you know, which is something that I feel like a lot of shows that think of themselves as very intelligent will try to do to like stay one step ahead of the audience here. They're just like, no, we're just not, we're not going to tell you, but like, we trust you're intelligent enough to determine this on your own. Going back to Misato not telling Shinji. Um, I think every character has their own somewhat justifiable reason for not telling Shinji about the identity of the fourth children. Asuka, it's clearly not her job. It's not her responsibility. There are adults who are supposed to do this and take care of this. And she's just as surprised as she is. Like when she learns that Shinji doesn't know that it's Toji, she's shocked that he doesn't know already because she assumes that someone would have told him by now. Right. The thing that is preventing Masato from telling Shinji is that she cares about him in the same way that that conversation that takes place between uh, Toji and Ray is about Ray wanting to talk to Toji about this because she doesn't know how to tell Shinji without hurting Shinji's feelings. That's essentially the problem that uh, Masato is running into as well. She doesn't know how to break this news in a way that won't annihilate Shinji. And it's kind of a classic Evangelion example of the the hedgehog's dilemma. You know, this is it. This is what it means. She can't get too close to reveal this hurtful information to Shinji without, there you go, hurting Shinji. Right. But ultimately, it's that refusal to deal with the the discomfort that causes Shinji even more discomfort in the long run. And it's, I didn't think about this until you were saying that, but as you were saying all that, I, I <laughs> that, okay, the person, the only person in this series who would not hesitate for a second to tell him is his dad. Right. If Gendo cared enough to do it, he would do it immediately. But Gendo doesn't give a fuck. It doesn't matter to Gendo that Shinji knows or doesn't know because he doesn't view people as uh, havers of feelings and relationships with each other. <laughs> right. Because he doesn't because he has no feelings and he has no relationships to other people besides his like office buddy who used to be his professor who he treats like a butler. Right. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. If, but if Shinji and his father even had like even the slightest relationship, maybe Shinji would pick up the phone and be like, hey, dad, uh, there's the activation test. You know who it is? And they're like, oh, it would be your it's your fucking buddy, I guess. Basketball guy. I don't know. I don't know his fucking name. I don't. He's out there. And like <laughs> that, that's like a realistic thing. That, like, could happen if Shinji had, like, the slightest relationship with his dad, but he can't. And the and the only, like, parental thing that his dad can seem to do is make him watch his friend get squished. Give him orders. Like, command right. him to do things. That's the extent of Gendo's relationship with Shinji, is he views Shinji as a pawn by which he can enact his master plan. Early in these episodes, when he's on the train with Futsuke, and he says, the only thing that matters is Tokyo 3 and Unit 1. Nothing else matters. And the fact that Shinji is the pilot of Unit 1 is kind of only even incidental because as we've seen over the last few episodes, he's more concerned about getting this dummy plug system up and running because as we can clearly see, it's a much more efficient way of getting the job done than relying on human emotion. The dummy plugs, uh, there's a lot of stuff that I want to talk to talk to you about, but I, I want to get your take on what we've seen of the dummy plugs so far. They spend rewatching the series. This is something that's sort of like remind that I missed. And I know that like we opened the series with me being like, this is maybe my favorite television show. And I know more about like its lore than like maybe anything, maybe any other media property. And that's true. At the same time, I feel like in every episode I say, I forgot blank. So here's the episode where I get to say, and I think I've said this before, maybe I forgot how much they foreshadow the dummy plug. They're talking about it for half the fucking series. Like, like the dummy plug, the dummy plug. It's coming, dummy plug, it's coming. So, like, it's, it says to me that it's pretty obvious that, like, 
maybe in Hidekiano's creative like writing his initial like sketching of the plot of this show that the this Bardriel sequence came really early on in the thought process is he's like this is this is a thing that I want to happen this is going to be one of the big character arc beats this is going to be something that changes the tone from one note to another this is like a pivotal event in the story arc is our main character is going to be forced to watch his friend basically get murdered by his own robot because of an autopilot system. And to do that, I need to give you a friend that you at least halfway give a shit about. And that's why you get all of the BS with the boys earlier when it seems tedious. And I've got to give you this ominous autopilot system. And that's why you get all these scenes of here's Ray in the spinal column tube. Mm -hmm. it didn't even all the way put it together that like oh the time in the tube is them like cloning her brain that's what that process was i didn't i didn't quite get that before yeah i think one of the 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 problems and we've addressed this in previous episodes one of the problems of this show is its reliance on techno babble I think partially to fill time, but what it does is it makes it difficult for first time watchers to understand what parts of the techno babble are actually important to the plot and which ones are filler. So it's really easy after being told all sorts of weird information about it, like, oh, they're crossing the borderline. You know, it's a 0.00000% chance of, you know, this thing happening. All that sort of like techno babble talk to maintain throughout all of that, like, oh, the AT field is important. The dummy plugs are important. Like figuring out what signal and what's noise is a failure of the show. But the fact that they keep harping on the dummy plug, clearly that matters. And this is exhibit A of why it was important to pay attention to that little strand as it was being led along. Can I push on that for a second? Sure. Because now I'm beginning to think, is is the signal to noise ratio a critique? Is it... I, is it a weakness or is it like a, a, a conscious like artistic effect because the show is and at this point in time we're like we're getting asides where there is very little plot happening and there's characters just talking about religion and philosophy not even in like some oblique abstract way like directly here we're going to discuss existential philosophy in our down time mm -hmm. right and like, it, so it's obvious to me that part of like near the bones of the show is this desire to make some sort of statement on the relationship between like living your normal life and the advice we get from religion and philosophy and how difficult that is. Maybe because of the signal to noise relation ratio in those subjects as texts and as interpreted by teachers. And like in this in this series, the teachers are Gendo and Futsuki and Kaji, whose advice is often abstract bullshit, right? Yeah, or just flat out wrong. Like, or just flat out wrong. I, I think you're onto something there. Like whether that's an intentional part of the show or not, it is certainly the effect, and it is the effect that is clarified by rewatching the show. Like mm -hmm. the more times that I've watched it, the more clear it is of like what is noise and what is signal. And that is a, a similar experience. Jeez, this is like, well, welcome to the second half of Ava. Uh, <laughs> this is a pretentious part of the conversation, but it reminds me of the experience of like reading any difficult text, you know, and realizing like, okay, this is actually the important information beyond the complexities of the sentence structures or the, you know, long running paragraphs. Like I've been on a big pension uh, kick lately. Holy shit. Um, and that's been kind of the thing that I've had to, to, to learn is like, okay, here's where he's fucking with me. And here's where the actual human heart of the story is. And that takes like getting used to the voice of the writer. And in this case, the voice of the show to determine, I want to touch on, you just brought up something that I think is essential to these episodes, which is the relationship between Shinji and Gendo, as well as the relationship between Shinji and Kaji. Because here in the way that we previously had episodes about Shinji's troubled relationship with mother figures, this is all about his relationship with father figures and surrogate father figures. Clearly, 
as we've discussed, his relationship with Gendo is fucking trash and toxic as hell and get, comes to a head in the most horrific way possible at the end of, of these two episodes. But he also spends a lot of time with Kaji. What do you make of the scenes between Shinji and Kaji in these two episodes? It seems to me like like Kaji is... We talked earlier about the triads of characters and the way that the triads of characters sort of repeat through generations and the way that each subsequent generation seems like an attempt to right the wrongs of the previous generation, but that never quite works or never quite catches itself right. And it just becomes more of a problem for the, the next generation, right? We talked about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, totally. In So Kaji is the Shinji of the generation between Shinji and Gendo, which makes him both a surrogate older brother and a surrogate replacement dad in the way that Misato is like almost literally your replacement mom. Mm -hmm. Right. And in a weird way, it's sort of, I see, I see Kaji as like very well-intentioned. I think he does really have Shinji's best interest near to his heart in an honest way. But at the same time, he's someone who totally like has like huffed the, the fumes of his own charisma. And, and here's I'm, I'm foreshadowing because I know things that happen to Kaji later, but like Kaji's this character who's very cavalier and very like, you know, man, you never really know other people. Women are from Mars. Women are from Venus. I don't really know your dad, man. You just kind of got to ride the groove. I'm your weird, I'm your caricature of, caricature of Jesus, really. He's your shitty new wave Jesus. Yeah, and, Ka- and he Kaji fails. has the energy of the kind of guy who turns the chair around before sitting you down for the talk, you know? like He's your sits- hip youth minister yeah. with arm <laughs> tattoos. I think that there's actually there are some like legitimate gems that he drops to Shinji telling him that it's important that Shinji finds something that he loves doing and, you know, comes to treat the fact that he's experienced pain as an opportunity for him to be nicer to other people, which is also something that's reinforced between his relationship with Toji uh, earlier in that episode. But you're right. Even then, Kaji still has like a lot of hangups you know he's still got like a lot of like weird stuff that seems suave when he's you know working his you know his game on Masato but is also cringy and kind of lame and clearly it's sort of sad that this is the only way that he can interact with people is by hitting on them right what I love is that Shinji's able to be like you're full of shit (laughs) like at both times, like in this, the whole scene in the, in the cafeteria and nerve, which I, I'm first of all, side digression. What is the scene like in the cafeteria and nerve? Like that must be some, some awkward conversations there, but you can know, you imagine, can I pause you just for a second? Sure. Yeah, can go you for imagine it. you're in the cafeteria at nerve, you're eating like the applesauce and you're like muffin and the other guys come in earlier and he's got the roast beef that is like clearly soggy, but also full of tendons somehow. Like it's managed to boil away everything, but the worst part of the meat <laughs> miraculously. And you're like, Hey man, how you doing? Like, I don't know, man, I got to do these HR reports. I don't really like HR subtext is I know you're getting canned and then a technician from the bottom of terminal dogma wanders <laughs> in covered in blood She's like i have seen the face of god and collapses <laughs> and you're like huh don't see that every day actually we do see that every day, every day. <laughs> yeah so like you know when kaji is like trying just like hitting on everything that moves shinji is like Come on, dude. <laughs> but at the end of it. And then later when they're having the sleepover and, you know, Kaji goes on his whole like Steve Harvey thing, Shinji is like, adults don't make any sense. Like, I don't fucking understand you at all. And that to me is like a great moment of Shinji being like, your weird gender binary shit is like, I'm not with it, you know? It's it's not sufficient for the problems that I'm dealing with, which I think adds some fuel to your your theories about about Shinji and uh Shinji's gender presentation, which I I think really really fit well into these particular episodes. 
Shinji's great insight is is not buying into binaries mm-hmm. for for all of Shinji's faults. I th- I think like that's that's Shinji's great and and also like Shinji falters when Shinji defaults to a black and white mode of thinking. That being, you know, like you're in the Bardriel fight and Shinji's like I'm not Shinji doesn't know Toji's in the Evangelion. Shinji knows a human being who's probably like a kid his age who who he or they whatever have never met and Shinji's just like I don't want to kill another person and then like five seconds later is getting choked the fuck out while his two wing persons have been 86th very fucking easily like what Gendo does is atrocious but like the 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 hyper moralistic piece of Shinji saying I'm not going to kill someone, even if this thing maybe just murked two of my friends and is going to choke me out. And also, no one has outlined this to me black and white, but I have every reason to believe if it gets to the building my dad's in will cause the literal fucking apocalypse. Like, you don't... It's not a reasonable position. Yeah. It's very much teenage thinking, though. I feel like Shinji sees the problem that's directly in front of him and has to address it with his moral system without thinking broadly about the world. And I would actually suggest that that's the same reason that Rei and Asuka get fucking wrecked by Unit 3 is that they also have that same instinct, like, to not pull the trigger. Like, Rei can't bring herself to, to shoot the angel Asuka is more concerned with telling Shinji something that's important to him and speaking the truth than paying attention to the battle itself. So in all three of their cases, it's their inability to kind of have their eye on the prize and and consider the fate of mankind that prevents them from doing their job. This and this actually echoes back to the previous episode. If we're going to go if we're going to go back on this whole Kierkegaardian existentialist train i sort of posited and i I think with the show's blessing or intention that like the last episode was informed by this idea of kierkegaard's moral spheres and him saying like you know the the first sphere is the aesthetic sphere and like living your life for pleasure will fall apart and you're going to need something more right Mm mm-hmm Kierkegaard's second sphere is is uh, I believe it's called the just sphere or the sphere of justice or the sphere of of like adroit morals. It depends on how you want to translate it. But like Kierkegaard thought that once you've abandoned living life for pleasure, you're going to want to live life for justice and live life for rules. And here's where it becomes weird social commentary for our times, because as much as I'm like an, an ardent leftist, I wonder if some more people with rose emojis on Twitter couldn't read a little Kierkegaard because Kierkegaard has this, I think very insightful point where Kierkegaard says, eventually fighting for what's right and against what's wrong in every situation will also exhaust you to the point of collapse because it doesn't map onto reality. You're going to need to find something more than that to give your life meaning, unfortunately. And like, to me, that's what the Bardriol fight is. That's like, this is like his first attempt to break that sphere and he fails. Right. Or I think he's acting inside of that sphere on these episodes and no spoilers for upcoming episodes. But I think you're right that the next layer will get addressed as we go further along. And I think the thing that makes this so fucking torturous to watch is that in the previous you know in in the first half of these of this duo we've watched Shinji's growth and how he has become a more considerate and caring person and that his his ability to now do right by other people to clean up Ray's trash to be considerate of helping out Toji to you know all of this has led him to a situation where his morals are no longer applicable and he has to do something unconscionable. And I think we can both agree that the steps that Gendo takes are abhorrent and vile and cruel. But part of it is because Shinji is unable to find a middle 
ground or find a third path that allows him to take action without taking a life. He's frozen by his uh, his sort of insufficient moral system. Uh, and that results in someone with a much crueler, more utilitarian and Spartan view of reality to come in and take over and enact cruelty into the world. Yeah. No questions there. I, like my critiques of like Shinji can't can't possibly to me be interpreted as like admonitions of of or or acceptance of what Gendo fucking sucks and like Gendo yeah. does not deserve a good relationship with his son. Like Shinji's inability to connect with his father is at this point like no longer Shinji's fault in the slightest. It's a tragedy for everyone involved except Gendo because Gendo doesn't deserve any fucking sympathy. That said, I did just think of something. The dummy plug is so fucking brutal, but Ray's so bad at being an Ava pilot. <laughs> so <laughs> what sense does that make? I, I, I actually have an explanation for this. Okay, um, please. It's twofold. One is kind of like, speculative and not necessarily supported in the show in any real way, but it, it, I don't know if it goes so far as headcanon, but I think we can agree that unit zero is kind of trash. Like unit sure. zero is like yeah. it, sort of putting Ray at a disadvantage to begin with. And I think it has been proven that Ray is competent at, at what is asked of her most of the time, but that clearly unit zero and unit two are just, you know, more powerful tools and Shinji and Oscar are therefore just more suited to kicking ass in the show. Two, I think the thing that makes the dummy plug so good at defeating unit zero is that it just lacks the moral inhibitions that the other three characters have. Like any of the Ava pilots could have done what the dummy plug did. All it does is choke unit three instead and then fucking game of thrones smash its fucking head in you know like right. any of them could have done that it's not a matter of a capability it's a matter of scruples and it's the fact that the dummy plug as ritzko points out does not have a full personality that it is just a digitized incomplete shell of a human it's a copy of a copy, really, considering how, you know, hollow Ray is. That's what allows it to just be like, oh, my job is to destroy this thing that's in front of me. And with no inhibitions, it does that easily. I, I think that that's generally what holds most people back from inflicting violence in a, you know, confident way. Like most fight training is just teaching you to not hold yourself back and to allow your body to do what it is capable of doing. And... You, that causes a certain degree of unlearning because people are, for good reason, hesitant to do that. But what makes the dummy plug so effective is it doesn't have to do that. It just acts. I'm into all that. I mean, and, it, and it, I think that also sort of that also sort of falls into. Let me go back to Kierkegaard for a second, because this isn't a thing that that because of timelines, this isn't a thing that Kierkegaard said, but it's a thing that since then philosophy scholars and critics have mapped onto Kierkegaard. And it's, it's really like the, the, like the silver bullet against looking to moral systems as law. What Kierkegaard doesn't say, because he doesn't have the imagery or words for it, but he's attempting to stumble onto, but what we found out like in the 20th century is that like defaulting to the moral sphere is fascism or can become fascism. It's enforce the rule with maximum brutality. And in this way, I think there is also like a political statement that maybe does exist inside of this episode. And that is when you abandon the questioning, when you abandon the thought, when you abandon like attempting to have empathy for other people, even when the stake is life and death, as the episode says, life and death decisions or the fate of the human race, abandoning that becomes becoming a, a Nazi. Based. Like, I, I interpret the dummy plug as, like, for all the weird conservatism that is in the show, that is that is Hideki Anno being like, I, I can't 
gel with fascism. Right. It reminds me a lot, uh, and it just didn't even occur to me until we started doing the uh, the plot summary, but it reminds me a lot of Battle Royale. Yeah. Um, the sort yeah. of, which, you know, comes out of this post-World War II reaction to the status quo in Japan, which is that there was an entire generation that had watched the adults of the world feed children into this war machine to what end you know we all know how that ended up for everyone involved and i think from my understanding battle royale was sort of written as this response to the adults being like you are feeding children into hell you are causing children to kill each other for what you know for what and this exact sequence in this show i think has a similar idea like shinji without the ability to fully question authority or his his questioning of authority leads to a situation where he is forced by the adults to commit acts of war when he doesn't want to when he's unable to act in any other way yeah i i think you're right like there may be a conservative streak to evangelion but it's certainly anti-militaristic on at least this level correct uh, for for listeners who who aren't aware I, let's just let's just back up for one second because it's one of those great pieces of like mid-aughts japanese cultural ephemera that i think has been sort of maybe lost in some ways because it wasn't super available battle royale was a novel uh and later a comic book and a very acclaimed film about kids in high school being forced to murder one another in a contest that were only let to, uh, in a contest to the last man standing at the behest of a totalitarian government. And I think the thing, maybe the thing people think about most now about battle Royale is that, what is it? The hunger games, the hunger yeah. games basically jocked it shit. Um, <laughs> what did they call the hunger games has, in France? Yeah, what I guess, right? Although the battle royale the, with cheese, <laughs> battle royale with cheese. I know the Hunger Games author has like since said that she's like I wasn't even aware that battle royale was a thing, but it won <laughs> it won best picture in Japan. Like the film version won best picture. Like it was a it was a critical success and like famously like an incredibly violent movie that you couldn't get in the United States, which just made it like one of the most pirated things mm -hmm. in the early broadband internet, along with Evangelion. Yeah, it's very much of the same cultural milieu. It's important to note that one of the reasons that it was banned in America is it, because at the time this was like in the direct aftermath of Columbine and right. the idea of a bunch of high schoolers uh, committing acts of violence against each other in such brutal, kind of like non-fantasy, non-sci-fi settings uh, was just too upsetting whereas the hunger games has this like clear sci-fi aesthetic that i think removes people from the consequences of what's going down i would i and would it, argue to its detriment i would like, agree I, I, yeah i have many problems with the hunger game films i haven't read the books uh so i can't comment on that but it does many things that i think are dumb as fuck but also has a few interesting ideas that I think do develop on Battle Royale in an interesting iterative way. Like the fact that the Hunger Games has more of like a, a reality TV critique built into it, I think is like a smart adaptation of that concept for a specifically American media yeah, culture. That's the chemical X in, in if, and also I'm actually do believe the author when she's like, it's not an adaptation, but that is the thing that makes it more applicable to America than battle Royale is precisely. Yeah. Um, anyway, we should, I think at some point in this episode, talk about my man, Toji, your boy here. Let's do it. <sighs> my, yeah. So I would say that it is a failure of the show that, they are not able to make Toji a more interesting character in the intervening period between his introduction and these episodes. He, I feel like they sort of use him as like this sort of like, you know, low class, you know, hothead jock asshole archetype. Um, but at the beginning of his introduction and, and the end we're reminded that he has been through some shit that all of the other teenagers kind of haven't in the same way, or that he has res huge responsibilities on his shoulders that the other non Ava pilots don't, you know, he's got a sister in the hospital. 
and as we learn in these episodes, is visiting her constantly and doing his best to take care of her. Clearly, Toji's parents are not really in the picture, as is alluded to in these episodes. So he has to be an adult. He's grown up much faster than Kensuke has, for example. And the thing that, like, the other... There's, like, a variety of things that just make these episodes so fucking sad. The relationship between Hikari, the class rep, and uh, Toji is it's not like deep or like groundbreaking, but it's just like perfect writing of like a high school relationship of the kind of constantly crossing paths, him not getting the hint, her inability to say it to him, which is a nice mirror to all of other characters inability to say what, you know, needs to be said. And the, the sort of like weird interpersonal dynamics between all of the core high school characters is so sad. And Toji is at the heart of it. This kid who really actually has to make a, a fundamentally challenging moral choice, you know, to become an Ava pilot, not for himself, not because it gives his life meaning, not because he doesn't know anything else to name like the motivations for the other three characters, but because it'll allow him to take care of another person and do right by someone who has been harmed by the Avas themselves. Like that's a real fucking nightmare that he has to moral quandary that he has to look at and make a decision about. And that scene of him, I mean, admittedly I'm a basketball fan, but that scene of him shooting hoops at the end of the episode, you know, as the sun setting after he's made his choice is so powerful to me because you know what it means for him to have made that decision. And it's, it just wrecks me every time. It's such a parallel to, to what Shinji's going to have to do at the same point in the very next episode, which is the mm-hmm. next sunset, right? It's yeah. Like, Here's the sunset. It's just you and the net. Are you going to, are you going to make the throw or not? The consequent choice that Shinji chokes essentially, and doesn't, doesn't take the shot, you know? And as a result, the choice that Toji makes is to be to be ground up into the machine. He he makes he signs the deal to take care of his sister at the cost of almost his own life. You know, he he's ruined forever. He's crushed in his entry plug as a result of this choice. It is the most brutal turnaround um, and most immediate consequence of what it means to to become an Ava pilot is that you will literally be ground into dust and who knows what he's going through I think it's it's really this is like the sort of Lovecraft trick right of like not showing and not revealing that while we're watching all of this unfold we don't get a glimpse at all of what Toji is going through inside the Ava and it is so fucking horrifying as a result. Like we can only imagine how much shit he's going through in there. Like whether the, the angel is attacking his mind the way that Lilial did to Shinji, the previous episode and what it feels like to be torn limb from limb by another Evangelion. Just holy shit. You know, I know, I know we say no spoilers, but keep watching to the rebuilds. You get, you get your point of view camera inside the entry. Briefly. eventually briefly um and it is fucked up while i think it's a waste that we didn't get to see more of toji and also incidentally that we didn't get more of class rep and oscar's relationship which i will continue to harp on is something that i wish had been more in the show it does pay off in a, a a brutally cathartic way in these two episodes it in a weird way i feel like hikari gets it the worst yeah like not of like every single character but in terms of like the narrative shaft i like previously i said ritsuko gets it the worst because i think she gets unpair un unfairly pinioned into like sort of like a, a maniacal villain role when clearly she's not exactly hikari just doesn't get time or space to be like to be like a real person when like it seems like the the backstory of the writing has one for her. Yeah. And I think it's 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 impre- it's to these two episodes credit that we learn so much about her so quickly and immediately get a better sense of what she's actually like as a person. It's just a shame that we didn't get a bit more of that a bit sooner so that the 
oh man, like so all of the other characters know at least on one level or another what's going down, but her blissfully unaware in the kitchen at the end, it's just like you've already watched all of the carnage take place and then it cuts to that like Hideki Anno is a sick son of a bitch. Like that shit is so twisted to like, to leave us with that at the end is just, Oh, heartbreaking. It cuts away too fast, but she's reading that recipe and following it to the letter. And at the very end, she goes last step, pour eight cups salt directly into. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, man. I, I, I don't know if I have too much to say about it. Like, it's so funny. I guess that the other thing to bring up is the fact that like we've been talking a lot about the way that Shinji has been, has these like two models of masculinity that are failing him. Gendo as this like abusive, toxic father figure and Kenji as this surrogate father who is not really mature enough yet to give him adequate advice, but is doing his best. And Toji for all of his like, like he's not someone that I think I would have been friends with in high school. But in his own way, he kind of is like a better example of like he has his codes of honor. He's trying to do the right thing by other people. He's kind of like a classic anime main character in a like a, a shonen series that happens to just be on the sidelines of the story and gets fucking destroyed for trying to do the right thing. It's really yeah. brutal. And the the real shame of it is that, like, it finally seemed like him and Shinji were going to be able to have a, like, mutually understanding relationship between each other. And then this happens. You do get those. It, it What really seals it is, like, that moment where he gets to go to the, because I got to bring it up every time, the Rei Ayanami trap yep. house. <laughs> it's a great, but it's a great trip of just him, like, being there, like doing it with Shinji and being like, this is what you people fucking live like. <laughs> and this is like this person who's obviously super important to your life, even if maybe you two aren't going to be romantically entangled. It looks like not at this point somehow. Also weird weird enough, gotta give it gotta give it to Asuka, the least emotionally mature character in the show <laughs> at this point, for having the most emotionally mature like understanding of another character in this series so far it's like don't don't fucking worry about hikari ray doesn't <laughs> understand people like even less than shinji does like it, that's like a great oscar moment that's like a small great oscar moment and i think it's there's one other tiny little detail that justin charity of the ringer uh pointed out in, in the ringers uh evangelion podcast um that i briefly want to mention here because i thought it was a really incredible observation um, and I'm citing my work, uh, so don't come at me, that during that conversation... But do come on the show. <laughs> yes, please, Justin, if you're listening. We love you. The The shot of while Hikari and Asuka are having that conversation and the subject turns to Shinji, and Shinji's like, uh, no, Asuka's like, Shinji is such an idiot, I hate him so much, and it cuts down to her rocking on her heels. And it's like such a strange, deliberate choice, and it's like kind of one of the horniest shots in the show it's like she can't even realize that like eh, there's something going on with you like you're like you think you hate shinji but eh, i don't know about that you know maybe there's something else going on here because maybe <laughs> unless and this is head this is this is headcanon but it's because maybe if asuka is going to accept her own being so horned for shinji she too needs to challenge her own conceptions of gender it it still works in your interpretation it still works uh, even if it even if you're you're not looking at it through that lens it's just like because asuka being able to admit weakness and feeling for other people is clearly very difficult uh for her and yeah you know it's it's just like a really awesome subtle moment that i didn't even notice every time i've rewatched it until justin charity pointed it out so Hats off to him for making the observation. I don't feel like I've got too much left to say about these two episodes um, and a lot of other stuff that has been sort of on the sidelines of these two, I think will be more valuable to talk about as we get into the uh, the end game of the show, which if you can't tell, it, it, this is it. We're really close to the end now. We're almost there. And if you 
weren't ready for it by now, here we go. You know, this is it. So unless there's anything you else you want to, uh, to bring up, I think I'm ready to sign off. I just wanted to say, you know, there's no more filler episodes. Mm -hmm. Not that there's any filler in this show, except maybe the fucking jet alone episode, which still infuriates me. Uh, like there's no more after this POV of the side character for the whole episode. There's no more digression. Yeah, this is it. You're in, this is, this is fucking it. And if like, if you like, maybe you hate yourself a little bit, but you kind of like got off on that bar drill episode and you were like iffy on the show up until now, but now you're like, this is great fucking TV. You're really going to like what's coming. Yeah. Except maybe, maybe the end, maybe you're not going to like that. Or maybe you're really, really, really going to like that. If you're a glutton for punishment, strap in because here we fucking go <laughs> and you know for everyone else there'll still be a few little bits of fan service here and there too see you later joseph <laughs> thank you for listening if you liked the episode please rate review and subscribe if you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really email us at human instrumentality podcast at gmail.com you can follow us on Twitter at another AvaPod and on Instagram at Human Instrumentality Pod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week. <laughs>